GSFM hosted Nick Griffin and Chow Ma from Munro Partners at a lunch event at the Grand Hyatt in Melbourne on 16th of August 2023. This was the final event in the Global Growth Roadshow, which also took place in Adelaide, Perth, Sydney and Brisbane. It's important to note that the information provided in this audio recording is general financial advice only and doesn't take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of individuals. Full disclaimers, PDSs and TMDs for the Munro Funds can be found on the GSFM website at gsfm.com.au. Good afternoon, everybody. We might kick off the formal part of today's catch-up, if that's okay. And, and first and foremost, you know, thank you, everyone, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us for the GSFM and Munro Partners lunch briefing today. Now, I know most of you here reasonably well, but there are a couple of newer faces, so as a reminder... Zane Layden. I'm a Senior Distribution Manager at GSFM. Um, I'm also joined by a number of my colleagues from GSFM, uh, namely Head of Retail Distribution in Stephen Fletcher and uh, Key Account Manager for Victoria and Tasmania, Simone Newman, and also our CEO, Damien McIntyre. Now at GSFM, as you know, we're essentially looking for gaps in the market in terms of where investment strategies are underrepresented in high demand or significantly differentiated and filling those gaps with the highest quality institutional grade asset managers that have the investment capabilities to fill those gaps. We're very fortunate to be partnered up with a fantastic Melbourne-based fund manager in Munro Partners who are ultimately looking to fill that global equity growth bucket for you, your clients and investors alike. Now Munro Partners have grown to manage in excess of $4 billion in assets since the business was launched back in 2016. And this growth in assets is really three things. A, it's an endorsement of their investment capabilities. B, it's an endorsement of the fact that they do fill that global equity growth bucket. And C, it's a reflection of the fantastic support that we receive from many, if not most of you in this room. So on behalf of GSFM, Munro Partners and myself, we'd like to thank you again for your ongoing support. Now from Munro Partners, I'm joined by someone who doesn't need much of an introduction in Nick Griffin. Nick is the co-founder, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at Munro Partners, and along with the broader team, whom many are here today, and please do make yourself uh, uh, known uh, team at Munro, uh, Nick is responsible for managing the Munro Global Growth Funds. Nick and I are also super excited to introduce you to one of Munro's newest additions to the Portfolio Management team in Chow Ma. Chow joined Munro Partners six months ago now, and she's brought with her you know, fantastic energy, uh, great diversity of thought, and even some new stock ideas for the team to look at, and I'm sure we'll discuss a few of those ideas today. Many of you would actually recognise Chow as she joined from a highly reputable and well-known fund manager here in Melbourne in Cooper Investors, and prior to Cooper's, she joined uh, as she worked in the United States running long, long short uh, global growth hedge funds. Now, Nick, to set the scene, 2022 you know, was a challenging year for all asset classes, none more so than global growth equities, with many stocks in your universe down you know, 60, 70 and even 90 per cent. Munro's unique risk management process allowed you to avoid most of the calamities within the markets and is ultimately Munro's view that we're getting close to the end of this bear market, if not already there, and investors will have fewer alternatives than to earn an adequate return than to come back to those key structurally growing companies that can grow somewhat independent of the macroeconomic environment. That said, 2023 has been a stellar year to start the year for equity markets. So, Nick, I propose to you the really quite simple question, where to from here? 
And with that said, you haven't come to lunch to hear from me, so I will hand over to yourself, Nick, for an update on Munro Partners and, and where the team are seeing great structural growth opportunities to generate returns for our investors in the months and years ahead. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thanks very much, Zane, and, and thank you very much, everyone, for coming along today. I, I echo Zane's sentiment that we, we do appreciate the support, and it's, it's great to see so many people in the room in, in what is our hometown. Uh, Munro Partners is a Melbourne-based business. Um, we have actually just been around the country last week doing this presentation. This feels like, you know, when the end of the, the tour, the band tour finishes back in your hometown and, and, and with the people that you know. Um, so from our point of view, I'm going to give you a quick update about Monroe Partners, um, who we are and what we do. I'll do a little bit of a recap of our investment process. I know some people have heard it before, um, and, but I think it's an important time to go through it. It's an important time to think about where we are in the cycle. Um, as Zane said, we, are, we have had a big correction in growth equities, probably the second biggest one I've ever seen since, since 2000. And it is presenting, in our opinion, a lot of great opportunities. And it's a great time to go back and think about you know, what you're actually paying us to do. Um, and then lastly, we're going to talk about, you know, out of our process, the big structural ideas that we see changing in the world and how our process is going to fit those. And there we're really going to be talking about AI and consumer uh, but in the Q&A, we're happy to go and talk about things like um, obesity, solutions, climate change, etc. Um, but yeah, let's take it from the top. <clears throat> Quick bit of background, you know, just to remind everybody, we are talking about global equities and we're talking about global growth. So we want to, our goal at Monroe Partners is to be your global growth manager. So, so we recognise you have portfolios, you have clients, you're looking for a solution. We want to be the solution for global equities growth. Um, the business was established in 2016 here in Melbourne based off a 17-year track record of double-digit returns. So we've got a 17-year track record of double-digit returns after all fees and expenses. It's currently sitting at roughly 11% um, since we started Munro. It's already peaked at roughly 18. I remembered we crossed our five-year anniversary at roughly 15% per annum, and, and I sincerely hope we can cross our 10-year at 15% per annum. But this is a long track record over a long period of time. Um, I wish I could make it a straight line. I can't. Uh, we are in, in, in taking risk in risk equities, and so hence, you know, the great team at Munro came up with the tagline, invest in the journey with Munro Partners, because it is obviously a bit of a journey sometimes. Um, we do run roughly four and a half billion assets under management. Um, just as a quick team update, um, Zane referred to it at the start, but I just want to flag, you know, Munro's really a, a bit of a homage to Scottish fund managers uh, from the time that I worked in Edinburgh. And a lot of those Edinburgh fund managers are partnerships. And so we built Munro as a partnership. We, we own and control 75% of our firm. Um, it is a zero goodwill partnership. Shall we share the equity around the staff? Uh, you earn the equity. You earn it for free. You don't earn it for nothing. It's sweat equity. Uh, but you earn it. And, and, and when you leave, you give it back to the next person. Um, and what that means is we don't get stuck with like shareholder structures where you're stuck with some sort of capital gain tax problem or you IPO and your talent can just walk out the door. The reality is funds management is a talent-based talent -based business and our job for you is to recruit the best talent we can. Um, this investment, this, this partnership model allows us to do that. Um, and so you're going to meet Chow today, who we managed to recruit from Cooper's Investments, and I can assure you it wasn't my winning smile that got her to walk across the street. Uh, it was this investment model, it's this ownership model that allows us to do that. But also, you know, since we last met you, we've employed Micah Root in charge of responsible investment, uh, came from Axie and the Future Fund, prior to that. Uh, Hugh Flanagan, who's in the room today, came from Unisuper. So, so we think we can continue to attract great talent to Munro here in Melbourne, and, and that's really our long-term goal. And it's very much 
centred on some of these Edinburgh-based businesses, and, and some of them are over 100 years old, and, and, and I'd love Munro to get to 100 years old. Um, lastly, by way of introduction, we run three products. Um, the three products are the Global Growth Absolute Return Fund. So this is, this is our global growth product with downside protection or absolute return. The goal of this product is to make you 10% per annum after all fees and expenses, or better, sorry, 10% per annum or better after all fees and expenses on a three to five year view. Um, it's actually done that, I said, for seven years at Munro, and it did that for 10 years at our previous firm. Um, next to that is the Concentrated Global Growth Fund. That's the same, same ideas, but just long only. Uh, this product is fully invested and currency unhedged and, and obviously provides a little bit more risk at the bottom. And, and the last product we have is the Munro Climate Leaders Fund. I'm not going to talk about it much today, but happy to take it up in the Q&A. But this product is really a thematic product designed to invest in and benefit from, from the, um, the beneficiaries of, of decarbonisation. So from our point of view, the best way we think about that product is if we could go back to 2005 and start a tech fund, we would. We can't do that. It's 2023. All the tech stocks are trillions in market cap. But in climate, they're all a lot of small ideas now, really sitting at the start of a, of a really good investment theme that we think is going to run decades. Last thing, just to flag at the top there, all three products, thanks to the, the good work of some of the people in this room, are now, are now quoted on the Australian Stock Exchange as managed ETFs. Um, they're managed ETFs that always trade at NAV. Um, so they trade with the market maker either side, they will not go to a discount. Um, so there are multiple ways to access our global growth process. Um, and there are also different ways of accessing it. The, global, the absolute return product is clearly more suitable to more risk-averse investors. The long-only product is clearly more suitable to investors with a longer-term time horizon. And so that's essentially what we're trying to offer here with our Munro products. Okay, how do we invest? Okay, so I am going to spend a, a five minutes here. As I said, I know some people have heard this before, but it really is an important time just to remind you, you know, what we do and, and how we do it. Um, this is a great study that was produced by a guy called Henrik Bessenbinder. I use it sometimes to remind people, I even have to use it to remind our own staff as to what we're trying to do here. Um, the reality is what he did here is he said, what would happen if you bought and held every stock that ever listed in the United States in the last 90 years? Um, so it's roughly 25,300 companies. And he said, what would happen if you bought and held every single one of them? And he, what he worked out is roughly 14,000 of these companies actually go to zero or effectively underperform cash. And so more than, more than half of every company that's listed destroys value versus cash over the, li over the 90 years of the US stock market. The next 8,000 only offset what the other 14,000 lose, and you end up with just 1,000 companies. So 4% of all statistical observations generate the entire wealth of the US stock market over the last 90 years. Um, it's exactly the same in Australia, and it's exactly the same in the rest of the world. The reality is equities is a game of few winners and lots of losers. Um, there are many people who will tell you that they should be overweight different countries or overweight different sectors. We don't think that's the way to solve the problem. What you'll find here is if you look at that 4% of statistical observations, if you just take the top 50 of those companies, you'll find that they make up nearly 40% of the entire wealth of the US stock market over the last 90 years. So 50 companies out of 25,300 generate nearly 40% of the entire wealth created. And so this, as I said, is a game of few winners and lots of losers. If you look at this slide on the right, and I'm going to see if my pointer works, it does. Um, if we just look in life and months and annualised returns, these are those top 50. We all know them now. We know who they are because they've been successful. 
but not one of them was actually created by macroeconomics. It was all created by structural change, whether that was Amazon, Facebook, Google and digitalization, Microsoft and Oracle and software, Home Depot and Walmart and big box retailing, McDonald's and quick service restaurants. It's always the same. Big structural change comes along, whether it's a smartphone, and you end up with just a couple of winners, Apple and Samsung. Big structural change comes along in big box retailing, you end up with a couple of winners, Walmart and Home Depot. And so from our point of view, our job as your growth manager is actually to sit and occupy this top left-hand corner, identify the big structural changes and identify the winners. That's essentially what we're trying to do here. That's how we skin the cat. Uh, and I want to be clear that no cats were actually injured in the formation of our investment process. Putting that together, so this is what we're actually doing every day. We're essentially saying this is the world. There's a global investment universe of roughly 35,000 companies. We have no hope of covering them all. There's a whole bunch that profess to grow. They're all growing because of interest rates or oil prices. I'm not saying they're bad investments. I'm just saying it's not where we have an edge. What we're doing is we're identifying a structurally growing universe of roughly 1,000 stocks. And within that, we're trying to find these areas of where big structural change could be occurring. AI is obviously one we're going to be talking about today. What's the big structural change occurring? And then how do we find the winners? And this is just how we split it into these different areas of interest. And this is how we find the winners, okay? And so the winners are important here because, again, it's going to come up a lot today. The reality is, is when you identify a big structural change, you might end up investing in the Nokia of the opportunity or the eBay of the opportunity. We find the six great qualities of a great growth company, um, and it's been consistent for a long period of time. The first is that they can grow. They need their revenue to grow at double GDP. They need their earnings to grow faster than their revenue. They need to be durable. They need to be able to grow on a three to five year time horizon. Most companies can do it for one or two. Not many can do it from three to five. They're usually doing it because something structural has occurred. They need great ESG characteristics. They need to be able to do it within their community. They need controlling shareholders or highly aligned management, and they need amazing customer perception. If you've got these six things, you can be a great growth company. From our point of view, if you think about it, you know, Apple had these six things, Nokia didn't. Amazon had these six things, eBay didn't. Here in Australia, I always point out that Macquarie Bank has these six things, and if they're in the room, congratulations, Macquarie. National Australia Bank doesn't, okay? That's how they manage to run rings around them year after year after year. Um, from our point of view, that then sets a multiple target. We build our own earnings models, okay? So the Munro people are in the room, we have five or 600 working models at the moment. The bottom-up set an earnings target. The earnings target times the multiple target equals the price target. And we need the company to double within three to five years to get in the fund. That's what we're looking for. Last thing just to flag is risk management. It's important to, to, to reflect on this again because of what Zane said of obviously what we went through last year. Um, the reality is if any company in our funds, our funds are reasonably diversified but actually quite concentrated, we have maximum position sizes of 10%. But if any stock falls 20% from peak or from cost, it's subject to a review. We're forced to review the position. We're forced to decide, is this the big winner? We're going to talk about a lot of potential winners today. I'm sure some of them will end up triggering at some point and we'll be forced to look at it. Um, when we look at it, we don't have to sell it. We're just forced to review it. Uh, but what ends up happening is the whole team gets involved. We review it. We can only keep it for 30 days. In 30 days' time, you have to review it again. In 30 days' time, you have to review it again. After a while, you realise you made a mistake. Um, and not only do you make a mistake, you avoid the loser and it gets you towards that big winner, which is ultimately solving our problem. 
And so what this does is it creates the picture on the right. These are our top 10 winners since inception in, abs- in basis point turn. These are our top 10 losers. Um, and so in 17 years of running money, we've never lost more than 100 basis points on one stock. Uh, we take this risk management stuff very seriously. It's how we managed to get through, obviously, the, the second dot-com wreck last year without this fund having more than a 20% drawdown and ultimately losing you know, roughly 14%. Um, and so from our point of view, if you think about this, if we're identifying the areas of structural growth and we're identifying the winners, and then we run these winners for long periods of time and we're fairly militant about eradicating our mistakes, then you're a reasonably good chance of getting double-digit returns through the cycle. Um, and that's essentially what we're trying to do here. And the reason why I wanted to run through this again is because you're going to see this come through in all the things we're about to talk about, because we're ultimately at a fairly unique point in the cycle where we can look forward and basically say growth equities are going to come back here and we can ultimately pick up a lot of companies that we, that we probably didn't like or didn't felt like we missed a couple of years ago that we can now invest in today. So let's move to that quite quickly. Okay, so the good news for everybody here is I have exactly two slides on the market, okay? We honestly think it's time to sort of move on from the macro side of things. Um, this is just a simple slide showing you interest rates over the last 50 years versus net debt. And what you can see is interest rates have come down for over a long period of time. Clearly last year was a huge shock. Um, interest rates going from zero to 5% obviously did a lot of damage to growth equities as an asset class and is now doing damage to effectively other asset classes in the economy. The important thing to flag is this created a unique set of events to make this happen. It was essentially us going into COVID and us coming out of COVID very quickly. And from our point of view, we think interest rates have peaked. I know they might go up another 25 basis points, they might go down another 25 basis points, but the reality is the long-term bond peaked last October. And from the moment it peaked, the market has actually behaved a lot better. Uh, And so from that point of view, interest rates from here are either going to be flat, up a little bit, or down a little bit. And we're absolutely fine with that. Because what that means is it means stocks just go back to following earnings. This is what we need as growth investors. Um, This is just showing you a number of different companies around the world their earnings per share growth. This is what happened to them in February. Um, And so from our point of view, Google's a good example here. We had a lot of earnings cuts last year as, you know, things slowed down on that side of things, in in the tech world and in advertising, et cetera. And in February, we see an earnings upgrade. And we saw another one just here in June. Exactly the same thing happened at Microsoft, but for different reasons. And exactly the same thing happened at Louis Vuitton for different reasons. And so from our point of view, the biggest companies in the market are now back into earnings growth. It actually happened in February. And so we've been very, and there's a number of reasons for this. Part of this is due to AI. Part of this is due to China reopening. Part of this is due to this fact that these companies are just really resilient and they're managing to grow through what is a sluggish economy. But putting that together, we've effectively moved on from the framework that I gave you last February. Back in February last year, we basically said we raised about 40% cash in our absolute return products. And we said, we're gonna go into a bear market. And we did. Um, And we said you need three things to get to the end of a bear market. You needed long-term interest rates to peak. We think that's happened. We think it happened last October. You need earnings estimates to come down. We think they have come down. Nowhere near as much as we thought they would at the start of the year. Absolutely nowhere near. I have to admit we were way too defensive at the start of this year. But the earnings estimates have started to go up again. There's a number of structural reasons for it. And and we don't think they're going to go down again, at least for the biggest companies. And the last and most important thing is you need time. And the reason why I was trying to say let's move on from the macro 
macros can only really dominate a market for so long. It's only really 12 to 18 months that things can be uncertain. After a while, even though the economy may stay bad, the equity market will effectively price it in. And so from our point of view, that's happened also. So putting that together, in the, long, in the absolute return runs, we went back to fully invested through February and March, obviously missing a bit of the first quarter performance, which hurts us relatively, but in an absolute sense, very happy to be back to fully invested. And since then, those funds have put on, all our funds have put on roughly 12% return. Um, where did we put the money back to work? We put it across these areas. And so this is essentially what you're paying us to do. These are the areas of interest where we see strong structural growth. At the moment, high-performance computer is the big one. Alongside it, you see the number of holdings, and of which you see NVIDIA is the biggest. Um, underneath that, we put the money back to work in emerging consumer. Charles is going to jump up and talk about some of our consumer names. The consumer is clearly more durable, particularly at the high end than we thought. And the, a lot of these companies were offering us a very good opportunity. And the other areas we put it back to work was digital enterprise and cloud computing, really to follow some of the AI shifts that we're seeing occurring in the market. And down the bottom here, you know, we have climate and innovative health, which has effectively stayed the same size the whole way. But across all of these areas, we, we basically now see earnings growth coming back or earnings growth enduring. And that earnings growth should equal share price growth, provided interest rates stay roughly flat from here. That's been what's happening since last October, and, and we should lean into that. Uh, and take more risk because we are seeing big structural changes occurring, which are equaling big earnings upgrades, and, and that's what you're paying us to do, is to take advantage of that. Um, so I'm going to talk about a couple of these, and then I'll let Chow talk about a couple of these, and then we'll do some performance and, and, and finish with some question. Um, so here's our first slide. AI is not just hype. Um, I'm going to do a little test on the room, uh, since you've all eaten. How do you know something's hype or not hype? Does anybody know, just out of interest? There's a simple way to work it out. So I'm going to ask the room, how many people in the room, Mark Zuckerberg came up with the metaverse in 2018. He changed the name of his company to Meta. How many people in the room have actually been to the metaverse? One. Congratulations. I hope it was good. Um, cryptocurrencies came along in 2019. Everybody got into cryptocurrencies. They were designed to change the financial system. How many people in the room have bought a physical good with a cryptocurrency? Okay, so ChatGPT came out in December 2022, proved that large language models can work. How many people in the room have used ChatGPT or know someone who's used ChatGPT? Okay, so this is reasonably simple, okay? This is clearly a useful technology that is going to have a lot of applications. We should be deeply across what's going on here. Um, when it first came out in December 2022, I want to be clear, you know, we thought it was novel, like everyone else at wrote a good rap song about dad that the kids sung at Christmas and, and made fun of me. Uh, but ultimately, this became a really big deal when Microsoft rolled it into Bing and took on Google in search. And then Microsoft said they'd create co-pilot products, co-pilot products across all of their software suite. Microsoft also increased their CapEx budget on data center by 50%, from $35 billion to $50 billion. Uh, so this is a really, really big deal because what happens is Amazon has to follow and Google has to follow and every other tech company on the planet has to follow, which ultimately means every company on the planet is now sitting at their boardroom table saying, what is our AI strategy? Um, so this is indeed a big structural shift. Um, we would liken it to a sort of an iPhone moment for AI. And so put simply, AI has been around for a long time. It's been doing your shopping feed or your Netflix feed, but everybody in the room remembers the first time they saw one of these. I'm sorry, people under 30 don't, but people my age do. The first time you saw one of these, it was pretty exciting. You said, I want one of these. It had the internet on a telephone. 
That's pretty cool. The internet had been on the telephone before this came along. But what this did is it created the app ecosystem. And now there's roughly millions of apps on this product that do everything. They track your fitness. They give you directions. They help Zane find a date. They, uh, they play music. Um, they play music. What else do they do? They do social media, etc. So from that point of view, that's what the iPhone created. Large language models are exactly the same thing. If you think about it, a large language model can be applied to all sorts of different things. At the moment, ChatGPT is proving how it works, but think about how a bank would use it to organise their credit data. Think about how Adobe or MidJourney is using it to create pictures. Think about how people are using it for music or to create video games. Um, think about how it's going to work in healthcare. And so you've got every company in the world is effectively diving into this technology. This is the simple way to think about how to invest in it. Um, so from our point of view, there's two ways you can do this. You can pan for gold or you can invest in the shovels. Um, what we're seeing at the top here is the, quite frankly, proliferation of companies that are going to create AI large language products um, across all those different things I spoke about. Some of them are existing companies like Xero in accounting software or Adobe. Some of them are new companies. All of them are going to create these large language models that are going to effectively help you predict and solve problems. And I'll show you a couple of them in a second. They're all going to use the existing large language models. It costs roughly a billion dollars to build one of these things. There are other ones being built at the moment. But all of them have to run it on the cloud. Not one of these apps is going to work unless you're on the cloud, and unless all of your data is on the cloud. So if you're a business right now and you haven't put everything in the, in the cloud, you have to accelerate it there. If you're a business right now and you're not using all Microsoft or using a, a cloud-based software provider, you need your data there. Otherwise, you can't take advantage of this technology. There are only four companies in the world that own the cloud today. Hyperscape cloud providers being Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and Oracle. And all of them, to manage these workloads, need to increase their capex, and they need to spend it on NVIDIA. Because NVIDIA and the supply chain, semiconductors are the ultimate shovels in this boom. They're the ultimate weapons manufacturer in this war. And the war has effectively just started. So from our point of view, Right now at Munro, we are very much investing in the shovels in the boom because not one of these companies has got back, sorry, only one of these companies has got back to an all-time high, that's NVIDIA. Most of them are still 20% below their previous peak and most of them trade below 30 times earnings. The only one that does is in NVIDIA and it's at 35. Uh, so we are very early in this boom and the shovels are not even expensive today. I know they've moved a lot this year, but they're not even expensive today. Let's go a bit into a little bit more detail here. If you look at, say, digital enterprise, so here we talk about the hyperscale cloud providers. Just Let's just do some simple maths. A standard large language query costs roughly eight times what a search query costs. And so as you push that compute crowd to the cloud, if you have like 400 million users querying a large language model roughly 20 times a day, you're going to add sort of 60 to 70 billion to the revenue of the, large, of the hyperscale data center providers on the left here. That's essentially very big for those cloud companies. On top of that, you're going to see these applications come along. And some of these applications already exist, and I'll show you a couple in a second. Um, but what they're doing now is they're integrating AI into these things called Copilot. Microsoft already has it with a product called GitHub. GitHub is essentially it's a, it's a product that helps you program. So if you're a programmer, it, it predicts the program you want to type, and you, that you want to make. It's like, it's like predictive text a little bit on steroids. Um, from this point of view, it's roughly $20 a user for GitHub. It's another $20 for the Copilot. Progr this product's been around for about 12 months already. Programmers love it. It makes them 80% more efficient. They've got roughly a 60% uptake on this. 
And so since Microsoft's had success here, they're going to do exactly the same thing with your 365 products. Um, so I'm assuming everybody in the room uses 365. You've got to think about a Teams meeting that you're on where you can listen to the Teams meeting. It will listen to your Teams meeting and then summarize it for you. It will draft an email for you in the same way ChatGPT will do that for you. This is what they're talking about. They've shown us some demos already, and the demos are pretty powerful. I've got one of them here. This is the co-pilot effectively saying, can you make a Word presentation, sorry, a PowerPoint presentation off this Word document? You drop the Word document in, you click Go, and it reads it and turns it into a presentation. Um, now, this is the demo. I'll be wrapped if the product works as well as this. Uh, it probably won't work as well as this day one, but you can see how powerful this technology is going to be. And you can see how much everybody in this room is going to probably want to invest in it. Or sorry, not just invest in it, but buy it and use it. Coming back to my point, you're actually going to use this technology. Put that together for Microsoft. There's roughly 400 million people in the world using Microsoft products today. If you assume they're going to charge roughly $30 a month for these co-pilot products, and they're going to launch them in the next six months. When they launch them, if you assume a 25% uplift, it's going to add an extra $30 billion in revenue to Microsoft's profit, which is roughly 13%, sorry, revenue, which is roughly 13 to their EPS. If 100% of people take it up, it's going to add 50%. And on top of that, you've got the cloud revenues I showed you earlier from Azure. So the reason why this AR stuff is so important, the reason why it's moving the market, is because this is the second biggest company in the world where we're talking about a potential 50% earnings upgrade over the next three to five years versus what we otherwise previously assumed. So what's the market doing? The market's doing exactly what it should do. This is Microsoft, $2.5 trillion, 30 times PE. This is a Monroe quality score. This is the PE multiple of time. This is the earnings. Company's growing for a long period of time. Hits an issue last year because interest rates go from zero to five and the economy slows down. The EPS flatlines, the multiple goes down because of the interest rates. But of course, this is clearly now going back up again because you can clearly see they're going to sell this product. You can also see that the economy is going to recover at some point. So that 10 goes to 15, the PE multiple starts going up again and the stock starts going up again. So it's just simple maths. And it's simple maths that's being driven by this big structural change that's occurred. And the earnings upgrades are clearly coming here. And so from our point of view, Microsoft is clearly an obvious winner here, as is Amazon, as is Google. Um, in, the, in, in the digital enterprise area, and we also like companies like ServiceNow uh, and Intuit and others. Um, think about the semiconductor opportunity here. So if Microsoft's, if you're going to use these products and Microsoft has to invest in front of them, and I'll give you a good example. I was actually in Microsoft in June, sorry, in May, in their office, and I said, why are you going so hard at this? Like, why is this, why is this such a big deal? I mean, are you just trying to distract us from the fact that the economy is really bad? <laughs> and, and they said, no, if you think about it, we're Microsoft, we're Sasha Nadella. You know, we've had all these little bets everywhere and all these different investments. But, you know, we missed the whole mobile cycle. Like, we lost the whole mobile cycle. Microsoft missed the whole thing. And in their mind, they're not going to miss this. So they're going as fast as they can. And everyone else has to go as fast as they can with them. And all of that money ends up at semiconductor companies because they're the ultimate weapons manufacturers in this war. From our point of view, you've entered the fourth era of computing. Um, if you think about the semiconductor market over a long period of time, this is it basically from zero in the 70s with IBM working on mainframes. As semiconductors get faster, you can do more things with them. You create PCs. PCs effectively quadruples the size of the market. And then you move to mobile and then you move to AI. In each one of these moves, you actually create the biggest company in the world. 
So IBM was the biggest company in the world here. As we moved to PC, Microsoft appeared out of nowhere to become the biggest company in the world. And as we moved to mobile, Apple was an $80 billion company. It's now a $3 trillion company. And every time it takes a semiconductor company with you, and now we're here and we think NVIDIA has a genuine chance of being the biggest company in the world. Ultimately, because if these products are used, and obviously that's the big question mark, but if they are used en masse, then you're going to see the semiconductor market go through a structural shift like it did this. As every device in the world gets connected to the internet, and then we process that really quickly on large language models. And NVIDIA is sort of the apple of this opportunity because they create the hardware and the software to program AI. Um, how do they do it? I won't go into massive details here because I've spent a bit of time here. But they basically sell these things called GPUs. GPUs have thousands of cores versus CPUs that have a couple, so they can make lots of little decisions really quickly, like is this a dog, is this a cat? You need to combine them together in what they call parallel processing to get accelerated computing to work. Uh, NVIDIA's known this for a long time. They've told us for a decade that this would happen. They have an 85% market share in GPUs. Um, yes, the others will come for them, but say their market share goes down to 65 but accelerating computing moves to roughly 40% of all computing, you, you effectively get the earnings of this company to more than triple from here. Um, putting that together, and again, just to really sort of stress how big a change this has been since December, is this is the earnings of, December, this is the earnings of NVIDIA over the long term. This was last year, which was horrible, uh, as they had sort of a, an inventory correction. This is the PE multiple. Along comes ChatGPT. We spoke to them in November. They said 2023 is not looking like the year. And then, and then by January, they're saying it's going to be amazing. <laughs> like everyone, everyone's diving in. So this was a huge shift that occurred over Christmas. And a lot of people are just thinking about this like it's a, 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 you know, a breadth problem in the market. It's not. In May, NVIDIA upgraded their earnings estimates by 80%, 8-0. Since gone up another 50 from them. So the earnings estimates that the brokers had for this company are 120% wrong from four months ago. And 120% wrong is fine if you're a mid-cap, but this is the seventh biggest company in the world. It put on $250 billion in market cap in one day, and it hasn't given it back. So this is real earnings upgrades across a lot of the companies we look at that is leading to real share price movement. If you're relaxed about interest rates, which we are, and not moving from here, then we should lean into this, and that's what we've done. Um, so what I'm going to do now is I am going to... That's basically the last thing I'd just say before I introduce Chow. Those are our investments across the portfolio, across high-performance compute, and digital enterprise, it makes up roughly 30 to 35% of the portfolio today. We do think this is a big opportunity, and that's why I wanted to spend some time on it. And I'm sure you'll have lots of questions in the Q&A, and I'll make sure I leave time for that. But I also wanted to be clear that it's not the whole portfolio. We do run diversified global growth funds here. Um, I'm going to let Chow talk about some of the consumer stuff. I'll come up and wrap up with some performance, and if you want to go into the other areas, we can later. But I'll, I'll let Chow come and introduce herself. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Chow, and it's great meeting so many great long-term Monroe supporters here in the room today. So thank you very much for your long-term support. Um, so as Nick said, I joined Monroe about six months ago. And before I joined Monroe, I spent about 15 years of my life chasing after some of these best growth companies around the world. Um, I started off in New York for about 10 years, um, and then over the past five years across the street at uh, Cooper Investors. The areas I'm going to cover today um, basically go across emerging consumer and digital media, and roughly these two together account for about 35% of our total portfolio. 
these are also some of the stories and the companies that I am deeply passionate about. So I'm super excited to talk to you about it. Before I dive into the stories, I just want to bring back to a slide Nick has already shown you. And, you know, don't let him undersell you. The big part of me joining Monroe is definitely his award-winning smile. But besides that, um, I joined Monroe because we really think about growth companies over the long term the same way. And the six criteria on the page, which again Nick has shown you, is how we think about growth companies. And this is the structure I'm going to talk about every single company today. And I actually start with the one on the bottom, customer perception. What does customer perception really mean for consumer companies or digital media companies that ultimately sell an experience or product to a consumer? To me, that means one thing, quality. You have to just keep creating consistently over the years the highest quality product and experience for your consumers. And in order to do that, and that's an incredibly difficult thing to do, in order to do that, you have to have the second one, control, management team. You have to have a highly aligned management team or a fanatic founder at top of the company to really keep making these decisions for the long term in the benefit of quality. And sometimes these decisions could be very counterintuitive or even unpopular at times. When you put these two things together, you have one of the most enviable things in the world, and that is called pricing power. And here, I just want to introduce a quote that's one of my long-term favorites. It's by Aldo Gucci. He is the son to the founder of the Gucci family. And he said, quality is remembered long after price is forgotten. And this is not to say that we should take you know, pricing power as, as, as granted. This is something that's incredibly difficult to have. But when you do have quality over the long term, you have pricing power. And pricing power ultimately drives revenue growth, profit growth, and the durability of profit. With that, I want to talk about the first story. And this is a company called Lululemon. It makes sportswear and, and yoga wear. And many of you probably have walked past a Lululemon store. It started in in Vancouver, Canada in the late 90s. And I still remember the first time they came up with their first product is a pair of very basic black yoga pants. And, uh, and, and it retailed for 100 US dollars. And I was totally shocked because at that point, a comparable product at Nike and Adidas would have retailed for about $20. But again, 15 years later, I still have my very first pair of yoga pants. And every time I tell this story, I always see smiles around the room because there are other Lululemon owners out there that still have that decade-old pair of yoga pants. And this just shows you when you have real innovation in the fabric and the design, customers recognize that quality. The second element of quality is the experience. When you walk into a Lululemon store, you are helped by an enthusiast of yoga, of running, of activewear. Why is that? Well, conventional wisdom for a sportswear maker is you make the pants, you make the shirts, you make the shoes, and you hand them over to your wholesalers to sell. Lululemon said, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to own and operate every single one of my retail stores. I do not have wholesalers. So all the product basically goes straight from Lululemon to the customers. Everyone that you interface with at the store is a Lululemon employee that have gone through the proper training that's consistent with its culture. Sometimes when you walk into a Lululemon store on a Sunday morning, there is a full-blown yoga class happening with 100 customers doing downward-facing dog. But this really is important because you get the top-to-bottom, inside-and-out consistent experience as a customer when you shop with a Lululemon. When they go internationally, they again defy conventional wisdom. 
Conventional wisdom said international markets are super complex, very difficult to penetrate. You have to have a local partner. Lululemon said, no, I'm going to give them the exactly same consistent quality experience and product as every single one of my, of my American customers. So Lululemon go outside of North America and they open and operate every single one of their retail stores. It might take a while, but when their international revenue start exploding, what is right about now, you really start seeing the impact. So as of now, only 16%, one sixth of all Lululemon's revenues come outside of North America. But if you look at a global brand like Nike, almost half of the business coming out of North America. Just on that, we think that international revenue could potentially triple for Lululemon. If you just look at the absolute size of the business in a huge market like China, Lululemon is only about 700 million US dollars today, and Nike has more than 10 times of that sales. As of now, the Lululemon international revenues are growing at 80% year on year, and we think that that is just starting. When you put great quality, great potential to grow, great management together, what do you have? You have earnings growth. You can see it to the right. This is the earnings per share of Lululemon. Really never taken a beat throughout this entire period. And then the multiple of the stock right now is roughly 30 times. Even 18 months ago, that was trading at over 40 times. So we actually think these macro concerns of consumer slowdown, of you know, international growth slowing, not only has not really been proven untrue, it actually gives us this great opportunity of buying a stock like Lululemon at below 30 times. Another quick story, this is a company that all of you know, and that's Louis Vuitton. And I'm just going to show you this one slide, because this really just shows the most magnificent pricing power of any company I've ever seen. So this bag, you can see this is the same bag over time. You, you can see the same shape. This is called the Louis Vuitton Speedy Bag. And it was invented in the 1930s. Now, I can't even go back and find the price that it was being sold at for 1930, but in 1970s, this bag was retailing for 150 US dollars. Today, it is retailing for 2,800 US dollars. Now, the design have changed, they really kept up with time, but ultimately, they end up having a 6% annual pricing increase for the same bag for 50 years. So if this does not show what pricing power really does for a company, I don't know what else will. When you put this together, Louis Vuitton, again, is roughly a 15% earnings grower, and we think that you can keep compounding at this pace for the next decade to come, and the stock is selling at roughly 23, 24 times price to earnings. I'm gonna switch gear a little bit and talk about experiences, and I'm gonna start again with a company all of you know, and that's Netflix. But before I even talk about the earnings and the, the revenue of Netflix, I just want to remind you of the Netflix journey, how great this company is at always putting consumer experience at the front and center. I don't know if many of you remember, but the very first product Netflix actually launched is a mail-in DVD service. And that greatly disrupted the blockbuster experience for all the US consumers. And the second product it revolutionized was online streaming of video content. And this is the first company that let consumers cancel their service at any time. So before Netflix came on the scene, most of the cable companies tried to lock you in for a two-year contract. And if you ever want to get out of your contract, good luck. You might as well kiss an hour goodbye because that's how long you're going to spend with the sales rep. Netflix lets you cancel anytime. 
And I'm only really reminding you of this because Netflix is taking that same focus on consumer experience to content creation. It is absolutely winning the content war. So the one on the left, we track this very carefully. We look at all the top rated original content produced and broadcasted in the US every week. And very consistently, we see that out of the top 10 pieces of content, Netflix occupies six or seven of them. If you look at the sheer number of people they attract to this content, it's astounding. Squid Games attracted 260 million viewers. I mean, how many pieces of content ever created in human history attracted 260 million pair of eyeballs? And the incredible thing about winning the content war is not only now you are really gaining market share within streaming and also streaming from cable, you are also really exercising the pricing power. So after they now really have a lot of the competitors, such as Hulu, such as, Nick, um, such as Disney, or even Paramount, really throw in the towel and say, I cannot compete with you on content anymore, Netflix is exercising their pricing power by finally pulling the lever of password sharing. What does that mean? Globally, there's roughly 230 million people paying Netflix on a monthly basis. There are another 100 million freeloaders, and we all know who they are. And Netflix knows who they are. They know I have two young nieces who live in Cape Town, South Africa, and who's really freeloading off my account. So Netflix now is saying, for the 100 million dear freeloaders, we love you, thank you for watching our content, but either you are going to now pay us an honest price, or you can have a lower tier, cheaper plan, but you're gonna watch a number of advertisements. So when we put the password sharing and advertising, which is the light blue and the purple line together, you have a very meaningful revenue reacceleration for Netflix. Put it all together, the good old Monroe chart, Netflix profit is likely to grow north of 15%, although the revenue might actually slow down to roughly 10%, and the stock is trading at 30 times fully loaded earnings, which compared to Netflix history is an extremely attractive level. And the very last story I want to talk to you about is a company called Liberty Media Formula One. And this is a very rare opportunity to actually own a global top three, top four sports league. Now, Formula One um, owns the sport of Formula One, but it doesn't actually own the teams. This is just a league that owns the licensing rights, the revenue that they generate from all the races. A few years back, when John Malone from Liberty Media, the most um, wonderful media investor, got his hands on Formula One, he decided to make the sport very popular in the United States. Now, Americans don't really like watching car racing. And um, Liberty Group did something that's really fabulous. First, they created this really extremely popular content called Drive to Survive. You run for multiple seasons. You really go into the personal stories of the drivers so that the viewers don't think of them you know, as little robots and cars. And this is very, very popular in the United States. They also do two more things that's very um, smart from an economic standpoint. One is they go and cap the spending that you can really spend on each cars. And this is exactly the same commercial logic as putting handicap on horses in a horse race. You make the game much more level playground. You make it much more equal and competitive. The second thing is they make all the teams actually become profit sharers of the sports itself. So as a team owner, now you know that you don't have to compete against a very irrational spender, and you also know roughly how much revenue you're gonna get up. So you actually attract a lot of interesting people wanting to invest in these teams. With these innovations, 
you have the American influencers really get on board. You first, you get Silicon Valley. You have Larry, uh, you have Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle. You have Elon Musk showing up at the Miami Grand Prix. You also have Hollywood taking note. You have Ryan Reynolds now investing in one of the Formula One um, teams. You also have Brad Pitt now making a movie about Formula One. As a result, Formula One is really attracting a very new, a very interesting audience across the U.S. This is much more white-collar, wealthier, more female participation, everything that an advertiser wants. So now comes the pricing power. The first thing they do is the one to the left um, is the licensing rights for, sorry, the one to the right, the licensing rights in the United States right now is still very, very small, less than 100 million U.S. per year per deal. And that compared to some of the much more popular sports like NFL, over 10, million, 10 billion U.S. Every two to three years, now when it gets renegotiated, we think that this licensing rights deal will go up multiple fold. On the left of the bar chart, they started to run their own race. The first one is coming up in um, Las Vegas in November this year. And we think that purple bar represents roughly the revenue um, that they can generate on that race. And when you look at all the other races, which is now pre-contracted to different local governments, we think that there is a lot of room for them to actually increase those other races to the similar levels of Vegas. When they put these two together, we think that the EBITDA, which is a rough proxy for profit for this company, could double from last year's level. Roughly last year, this company generated 600 million US of EBITDA. By 2025, we think that they can do 1.2 billion. And this is trading at 25 times next year's EBITDA, which again, we think is just an incredibly attractive level. Now, these are all my stories, and we have many, many of those in our portfolio. And the reason why I'm telling all these stories really just give you a flavor of how we pitch the stock and how we find these stocks in the boardrooms of Monroe. You can see we go through customer perception, we go through management, we go through the revenue and the earnings growth of each one of these stories. And then on top of that, because of all these uncertainties, we still see in macro a lot of these companies are trading at a much lower multiple than they did just a few months back. And that, to us, is an incredible opportunity. I will hand it back to Nick to wrap up and take your questions. Thank you. Thanks very much, Chow. And, um, and so what I'll quickly do here is I'll just run through the main products and performance. And as I said, we'll go to questions. Um, so as I said earlier, we had three products. The absolute return product, roughly beta 0.7 product, long only product, 1.2, and, the, and then the climate product. Um, in the absolute return product, important to flag, we have these downside protection tools. Clearly, from our point of view, some of these didn't work as well as we would have liked last year. Um, what we can show you here is that we do use these downside protection tools mainly to effectively raise cash or lower exposure in the fund. Um, as I showed you here, it is effectively a variable beta product. This is how we produce the beta 0.7 while still owning stocks that have a beta above the market. Um, we lowered the exposure here in 2008. We did here in COVID, and obviously we had to do here in January 2022. And as I said earlier, we've put that cash back to work in, pretty much since February in the last three months. Um, and each time, we're not necessarily selling the whole fund and buying it back again. We're, we're using shorts, shorts along the bottom there that I'm showing or, or hedging tools. Um, to give you an idea, in terms of downside protection tools, it's, it's fair to say that last year we didn't add as much as we would have liked in a downturn. We added roughly 1.6% in this downturn. We added nearly 7% in the COVID downturn. We added 2% in this one from our downside protection tools. Um, the reason why is actually quite easy to explain from the slide. This was a lot easier to hedge 
than, say, this was. Last year, we had a lot of bear market rallies. Um, we continued to follow exactly the same process that we followed here, but many of the gains we made here, we sort of gave back here, or the gains we made here, we gave back here. And so we didn't try to tactically trade our way through it. We obviously put a bit of tactics in it, but we, what we wanted to do was make sure the fund was consistently hedged throughout the year for, say, a significantly worse outcome. Um, as we come, as we put the capital back to work, it is important to flag that obviously we're presenting a pretty rosy outlook here. Um, I get that in the q and I'm going to get a lot of questions. Um, we have been buying put options as we put the cash back to work. So as we put this cash back to work, you know, we've been spending more than we normally would on put options on downside protection for things like Silicon Valley Bank, for things like debt ceilings not being approved, for things like China apparently imploding this week. Um, and so from that point of view, these, these are there. They are causing a bit more drag than usual at the moment. But as time goes on, as we get more comfortable, we, we, we think that would go away. Um, in terms of how the fund's positioned, that's how it was positioned at the end of June, roughly 94% invested. Um, we have lowered it a little bit um, through July and August, so it's just under 90 today uh, with some put options in, involved at the moment. These are your top positions. These are, these are your exposures. Look, in terms of performance, I recognise this, is, um, this isn't a perfect picture. It has been a frustrating couple of years in growth equities. Uh, but from our point of view, you know, ultimately what we did is we tried to protect as well as we could through this period. Um, clearly not as well as we would have liked, uh, but I suspect a lot better than most of our growth peers. And then back here, you're probably seeing a little bit of relative underperformance as we put the cash back to work. That really is a Q1 thing. It's not really reflective in the last four months, five months, where as the cash has gone back to work, the funds basically performed in line with our long-only products and put roughly 12% on. Other key thing to flag is, is, you know, we are here coming out of, I think, one of the bigger corrections we've had in, our, in my time, 17 years of doing this. Funds still doing 10% per annum, still doing the beta of 0.7. And we think over the journey, we, as, as we tried to show in this presentation, we've got a lot of opportunity to build on this because you are effectively finding companies we really like at half the multiple they used to be at, where the earnings haven't really changed uh, and the business hasn't really changed. And so from our point of view, provided rates don't go up, this is a good opportunity to be back invested and really thankful that we've managed to do that without getting horribly whipsawed in the last four months. Um, last thing just to flag here on the fund, just to remember that Syscom fund is currency hedged, roughly 50%. That is causing a good chunk of relative drag at the moment. Um, we always hedge it back to 50%, roughly, um, because we want to give you 10% per annum plus in Australian dollars, not necessarily in euros, which is less helpful to your clients. Um, and so from that point of view, as the currency goes down, that causes a relative drag. As it goes up again, it's less so. The only reason we hold US dollars is because it's a good volatility tool. This is actually the first year I've seen where the S&P has gone up, what, 15 16% and the currency has gone down 10 Normally the currency goes up when the S&P goes up. It hasn't happened. Uh, that is causing a few relative issues here. Um, no more so apparent in our long-only fund, which is here. This is the long-only product. Um, very similar to the, the long-short product in terms of how we do it, just without the downside protections. Uh, has obviously performed significantly better. Uh, main reason here is, is, one, that currency I told you about, which we think we get back. But, two, it's also us just being a bit more conservative in the absolute return fund. Uh, the reality is, is, is you know what's best for your client. We felt it was an important time to be conservative to, to basically preserve our ability to get you to the double-digit returns. You can't get to double-digit returns if you lose 40% in any one year. It's virtually mathematically impossible. And so we were really focused on not losing too much money. That's caused a bit of a relative drag at the turning point here. We do think that's gone away, and it's already gone away in Q2 and more recently when you strip out some of the currency moves. 
Um, lastly, just to talk about the climate product, um, climate fund is very different. You can see it's very different in terms of where it's invested and what it's invested in, um, but really to invest in and benefit from the enablers of climate change. Um, a tip for any people who want to start a fund going forward, don't start a fund a day before the bear market starts, okay? So we started this fund in October 2021 uh, and walked straight into a bear market. Uh, I can assure you the synthetic returns for the two years prior to this were incredibly good, uh, but timing is everything, and this one did not get the timing right. Uh, but to be fair, we got our timing of our initial fund launch incredibly right back in 2016. Um, from our point of view, this is now back to above, above high water markets, above, you know, it's back to positive since inception. And if anything, the climate opportunities got better because when, since we launched it, the IRA has been done in the US um, and Russia invaded Ukraine, etc. So we're still very supportive of this product. Haven't seen anything that's really changed outside of the fact it's been a difficult couple of years in markets. Um, yeah, finally, from our point of view, just to remind you, you know, that ultimately these are the areas where we see strong structural growth in the years ahead. This, you know, so actually, let me put this a different way. From our point of view, we feel that sort of normal services resumed here. We have been through a really big shock. Interest rates went from zero to five, okay? It was a big shock. If anything, we thought it would be bigger than what it was. Um, but in the end, what's ended up happening is rates have stopped going up and the stocks have just gone back to following earnings. And the earnings of these companies are much, much more resilient than you think, much more resilient than even we think. Um, and it's important to remember that as I, as I constantly sell people, and I'm sure this will come up in the Q&A, the S&P 500 is not really the economy. Never has been, it never will be, and it's further away from that it ever has been today. What we have seen through the last six months, and we have obviously leaned into since February, is that big structural changes will continue to occur regardless of the economic environment, and that companies will actually benefit from them. That's allowed their earnings to turn much earlier than most pundits thought, and including us. Uh, and all we're saying is we can see the structural changes occurring, we can see the earnings turning and accelerating, and that we should lean into that. These are the areas where we see that earnings turn happening, and this is how we've invested accordingly. And consuming that earnings growth continues and assuming interest rates aren't going from 5 to 10 from here, then the shock is in the rearview mirror. Uh, and, and from our point of view, what we want to do is highlight these areas. This is where the growth is. This is ultimately the path to double-digit returns and preserving our double-digit return track record into the future. It is 2 o'clock. I'm going to let Steve come up and wrap up. But I just wanted to again highlight our materials. Look, I recognise it's been a frustrating time in growth equities. Um, we wanted to bring it back to the point that it was the rates that were doing it. Um, we feel like the earnings side of it's clearly been much less than we thought and now going up again and we need to lean into that. Uh, and importantly, we have these materials available. We're very transparent. The funds are published on a 30 days lags. The videos are there for you ultimately to understand what we're doing and how we're doing it and how we're trying to find these structural opportunities to get you the structural earnings growth that you can't get access to here in Australia. And that structural earnings growth equals share price growth and hopefully returns for our funds into the future. Um, so thanks very much for listening and we'll hang around for a bit at the end. Well, first of all, um, uh, Nick and Chow, thanks very much for your, uh, your presentations uh, this afternoon. Hopefully, um, you, know, you, you, you enjoyed hearing about some of the, uh, the stocks that have made their way into the portfolio, the stocks that are doing very well for, for the funds, but also hearing about some of the stocks that might be there uh, tomorrow and in the future. Also, the updates on current positioning and performance. Hopefully, that's um, some information you can share with your clients uh, when, you, uh, when you do your client reviews next. Um, it's my job to wrap up, so I won't take too long, uh, but I just wanted to start by, uh, first of all, thanking you all very much for your, for your support. 
Um, this month is Munro's seventh year anniversary, uh, a, a business that was started in 2016 by uh, three founders uh, and $20 million in assets under management. Today, uh, they manage in excess of $4.5 billion in, in assets under management. Um, and I'd just like to acknowledge that a lot of the people in the room today were very early adopters of Munro. Uh, other investors have come along the journey and other investors have come more recently. Uh, to, to all of you, thank you very much for, for your support. It's uh, very much appreciated. Um, I'm so pleased that so many people were here today to, to meet with Chow um, and um, meet her for the first time. As, as Nick said, Chow joined Munro Partners six months ago. Uh, she's a highly experienced, highly successful investor. Uh, and her appointment, uh, along with the other appointments that Nick spoke about, we spoke about Michael Root, who joined as the responsible investment manager, uh, Hugh Flanagan uh, as Munro's dealer, uh, etc. I think all of these appointments really just point back to, uh, or effectively they're a reflection of what uh, of Munro's commitment, ongoing commitment to, to building out this investment team, hiring the best people that are available with one goal in mind, and that goal is to deliver investment returns for your clients uh, and ensure that the Munro funds deliver on their investment objectives. Um, from a, a product point of view, uh, Munro has also been laser focused on ensuring that all of your clients can access the Munro funds the way in which you would like to access the funds. Um, we spoke earlier about the fact that all the funds are listed on the ASX. Uh, they're also available, as, as we know, as, as unlisted funds on, and available on platforms. Um, from an investment strategy point of view, you know, we understand that diversification is key for client portfolios and, and in, in, the, in the equity bucket, investors will have exposure to value managers all the way through the cycle and they'll also have exposure to growth managers all the way through the cycle. Within that global growth equity bucket, Munro have an, a range of solutions. Uh, you know, for, for the investor that is focused on downside protection and capital preservation and, and wants that smoother journey towards achieving double digit returns through the cycle, then that's the Munro Global Growth Fund, the long short fund. Uh, for the investor that uh, wants to be fully invested through the cycle, uh, is happy to put up with some short-term volatility as a way of achieving uh, excess benchmark returns over the medium to long term, then that's the, the Munro Concentrated Fund, the Long Only Fund. And then finally, uh, for those clients that want access to the, the climate change thematic, uh, we have the Munro Climate Change Leaders Fund. Uh, whatever solution is right for your client, they all lead back to the same place. They all lead back to the same um, uh, idea generation, uh, the same investment insights. Uh, they have access to Munro's investment uh, process that's been running now successfully for, for 17 years uh, and that same stock picking capability. Um, so whatever it is that your client needs, uh, Munro has a solution for you there in that global growth bucket. Um, so with that, I'm now going to uh, let you all go. We're a bit after two o'clock. Um, please visit the Munro website. As Nick said, the team have done an, an amazing job with all the information and insights on that, on that website. So I encourage you to go there. Um, thanks again for coming along. Uh, we, uh, we look forward to seeing you all again soon. Uh, there's a very big game of soccer on tonight. Uh, we've got the semi-final, so fingers crossed, and, and go Matildas. Thank you. Thank you.